Chapter Two, Book Three of Rookwood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Paul Curran. Rookwood by William Harrison Ainsworth. Book Three, Chapter Two A Gypsy Encampment. I see a column of slow-rising smoke all top the lofty wood that skirts the wild. Cowper, the task. The top of the morning to you, Jemmon, said Turpin, as he rode up at an easy canter. Did you not hear my halloo? I caught a glimpse of you on the hill yonder. I knew you both, two miles off, and so, having a word or two to say to you, Luke Bradley, before I leave this part of the country, I put best to it. "'and she soon brought me within hail, bless her black skin,' added he, "'affectionately patting his horse's neck. "'There's not a match in these parts, nor in any other. "'She wants no coaxing to do her work, no bleeders for her. "'I should have been up with you before this "'had I not taken a cross-cut to look at poor Ben. "'One night, when mounted on my mare, "'to Bagshot Heath I did repair, "'and saw Will Davis hanging there, "'upon the gibbet bleak and bare.' with a rustified, fustified, mustified air. Excuse my singing. The sight of a gibbet always puts me in mind of the golden farmer. May I ask whither you are bound, comrades? Comrades, whispered the sexton to Luke. You see, he does not so easily forget his old friends. I have business that will not admit of delay, rejoined Luke. And to speak plainly? You want not my society, returned Turpin. I guessed as much, natural enough. "'You have got an inkling of your good fortune. "'You have found out you are a rich man's heir, "'not a poor wench's bastard. "'No offence. "'I'm a plain-spoken man, as you will find, "'if you know it not already. "'I have no objection to your playing these fine tricks on others, "'though it won't answer your turn to do so with me.' "'Sir!' exclaimed Luke sharply. "'Sir, to you,' replied Turpin. "'Sir Luke, as I suppose you would now choose to be addressed, "'I'm aware of all. "'A nod is as good as a wink to me.' "'Last night I learned the fact of Sir Piers' marriage from Lady Rookwood. "'Aye, from her ladyship. "'You stare, and old Peter there opens his ogles now. "'She let it out by accident, "'and I am in possession of what can alone substantiate your father's first marriage "'and establish your claims to the property.' "'The devil!' cried the sexton, adding in a whisper to Luke, "'You had better not be precipitate in dropping so obliging an acquaintance.' "'You are jesting,' said Luke to Turpin. "'It is ill jesting before breakfast,' returned Dick. "'I am seldom in the mood for a joke so early. "'What if a certain marriage certificate had fallen into my hand?' "'A marriage certificate?' echoed Luke and the sexton simultaneously. "'The only existing proof of the union of Sir Piers Rookwood with Susan Bradley,' "'continued Turpin. "'What if I had stumbled upon such a document? "'Nay more, if I knew where to direct you to it. "'Peace!' cried Luke to his tormentor, and then addressing Turpin, "'If what you say be true, my quest is at an end. All that I need you appear to possess. Other proofs are secondary to this. I know with whom I have to deal. What do you demand for that certificate?' "'We will talk about the matter after breakfast,' said Turpin. "'I wish to treat with you as friend with friend. Meet me on those terms, and I am your man. Reject my offer, and I turn my mare's head and ride back to Rookwood.' With me now rest all your hopes. 
I've dealt fairly with you, and I expect to be fairly dealt with in return. It were idle to say, now I have an opportunity, that I should not turn this look to my account. I were a fool to do otherwise. You cannot expect it. And then I have Rust and Wilder to settle with. Though I have left them behind, they know my destination. We have been old associates. I like your spirit. I care not for your haughtiness. But I will not help you up the ladder to be kicked down myself. Now you understand me? Whither are you bound? To Davenham Priory, the gypsy camp. The gypsies are your friends? They are. I'm alone. You are safe. You pledge your word that all shall be on the square. You will not mention to one of that canting crew what I have told you. With one exception, you may rely upon my secrecy. Whom do you accept? A woman. Bad! Never trust a petticoat. I will answer for her with my life. And for your grandad there? He will answer for himself, said Peter. You need not fear treachery me. Honour among thieves, you know. Or where else should you seek it? rejoined Turpin. For it has left all other classes of society. Your highwayman is your only man of honour. I will trust you both, and you shall find you may trust me. After breakfast, as I said before, we will bring the matter to a conclusion. Tip us your saddle, Sir Luke, and I am satisfied. You shall rule in Rookwood, I'll engage, ere a week be flown, and then— But so much parleying is dull work. Let's make the best of our way to breakfast. And away they cantered. A narrow bridle road conducted them singly through the defiles of a thick wood. Their route lay in the shade, and the air felt chilly amidst the trees, the sun not having attained sufficient altitude to penetrate its depths, while overhead was all warmth and light. Quivering on the tops of the timber, the horizontal sunbeams created, in their refraction, brilliant prismatic colourings and filled the air with motes like golden dust. Our horsemen heeded not the sunshine or the shade. Occupied each with his own train of thought, they silently rode on. Davenham Wood, through which they urged their course, had, in the olden time, been a forest of some extent. It was then an appendage to the domains of Rookwood, but had passed from the hands of that family to those of a wealthy, adjoining landowner and lawyer, Sir Edward Davenham, in the keeping of whose descendants it had ever after continued. A noble wood it was, and numbered with many patriarchal trees, ancient oaks with broad gnarled limbs, which the storms of five hundred years had vainly striven to uproot, and which were now sternly decaying. Gigantic beech trees, with silvery stems shooting smoothly upwards, sustaining branches of such size that each, dissevered, would itself have formed a tree, populous with leaves, and variegated with rich autumnal tints the sprightly sycamore, the dark chestnut, the weird witch-elm, the majestic elm itself, festooned with ivy, every variety of wood, dark, dense, and intricate, composed the forest through which they rode. And so multitudinous was the timber, so closely planted, so entirely filled up with a thick, matted vegetation, which had been allowed to collect beneath, that little view was afforded, had any been desired by the parties, into the labyrinth of the grove tree after tree clad in the glowing livery of the season was passed and as rapidly succeeded by others occasionally a bough projected over their path compelling the riders to incline their heads as they passed but heedless of such difficulties they pressed on now the road grew lighter and they became at once sensible of the genial influence of the sun 
the transition was as agreeable as instantaneous. They had opened upon an extensive plantation of full-grown pines, whose tall, branchless stems grew up like a forest of masts, and freely admitted the pleasant sunshine. Beneath those trees the soil was sandy and destitute of all undergrowth, though covered with brown, hair-like fibres and dry cones shed by the pines. The agile squirrel, that freest denizen of the grove, starting from the ground as the horseman galloped on, sprang up the nearest tree, and might be seen angrily gazing at the disturbers of his haunts, beating the branches with his forefeet in expression of displeasure. The rabbit darted across their path. The jays flew screaming amongst the foliage. The blue cushat, scared at the clatter of the horse's hooves, sped on swift wing into quarters secure from their approach while the party-coloured pies, like curious village gossips, congregated to peer at the strangers, expressing their astonishment by loud and continuous chattering. Though so gentle of a scent as to be almost imperceptible, it was still evident that the path they were pursuing gradually mounted a hillside, and when at length they reached an opening, the view disclosed the eminence they had insensibly won. Pausing for a moment upon the brow of the hill, Luke pointed to a stream that wound through the valley, and tracing its course, indicated a particular spot amongst the trees. There was no appearance of a dwelling-house, no cottage roof, no white canvas shed to point out the tents of the wandering tribe whose abode they were seeking. The only circumstance betokening that it had once been the haunt of man were a few grey monastic ruins, scarce distinguishable from the stony barrier by which they were surrounded and the sole evidence that it was still frequented by human beings was a thin column of pale blue smoke that arose in curling wreaths from out the break, the light-coloured vapour beautifully contrasting with the green umbrage whence it issued. "'Our destination is yonder!' exclaimed Luke, pointing in the direction of the vapour. "'I'm glad to hear it!' cried Turpin. "'As well as to perceive there is someone awake, that smoke holds out a prospect of breakfast!' No smoke without fire, as old Lady Scanmag said, and I'll wager a trifle that fire was not lighted for the fate of fellows to count their fingers by. We shall find three sticks, and a black pot with a kid seething in it, I'll engage. These gypsies have picked out a prettyish spot to quarter in, quite picturesque, as one may say, and but for that tell-tale smoke, which looks for all the world like a Dutch skipper blowing his morning cloud, no one need know of their vicinity. A pretty place, upon my soul.' The spot in sooth merited Turpin's eulogium. It was a little valley in the midst of wooded hills, so secluded that not a single habitation appeared in view. Clothed with timber to the very summits, excepting on the side where the party stood, which verged upon the declivity, these mountainous ridges presented a broken outline of foliage, variegated with tinted masses of bright orange, timber, and deepest green. Four hills hemmed in the valley, here and there a grey slab of rock might be discerned amongst the wood, and a mountain ash figured conspicuously upon a jutting crag immediately below them. Deep sunken in the ravine, and concealed in part from view by the wild herbage and dwarf shrubs, ran a range of precipitous rocks, severed, it would seem, by some diluvial convulsion, from the opposite mountainside, as a corresponding rift was there visible, in which the same dip of strata might be observed together with certain ribbed cavities, matching huge bolts of rock which had once locked these stony walls together. Washing this cliff swept a clear stream, 
well known and well regarded, as it waxed in width by the honest brethren of the angle, who seldom, however, tracked it to its rise amongst these hills. The stream found its way into the valley through a chasm far to the left, and rushed thundering down the mountainside in a boiling cascade. The valley was approached in this direction from Rookwood by an unfrequented carriage road, which Luke had, from prudential reasons, avoided. All seemed consecrated to silence, to solitude, to the hush of nature. Yet this quiet scene was the chosen retreat of lawless depredators, and had erstwhile been the theatre of feudal oppression. We have said that no habitation was visible, that no dwelling tenanted by man could be seen, but following the spur of the furthest mountain hill, some traces of a stone wall might be discovered, and upon a natural platform of rock stood a stern, square tower, which had once been the donjon of the castle, the lords of which had called the four hills their own. A watch-tower had then crowned each eminence, every vestige of which had, however, long since disappeared. Sequestered in the vale stood the priory before alluded to, a monastery of grey friars of the order of St. Francis, some of the venerable walls of which were still remaining, and if they had not reverted to the bat and the owl, as is wont to be the fate of such sacred structures, their cloistered shrines were devoted to beings whose natures partook, in some measure, of the instincts of those creatures of the night, a people whose deeds were of darkness, and whose eyes shunned the light. Here the gypsies had pitched their tent, and though the place was often, in part, deserted by the vagrant horde, yet certain of the tribe, who had grown into years, over whom Barbara Lovell held queenly sway, made it their haunt, and was suffered by the authorities of the neighbourhood to remain unmolested. A lenient piece of policy which, in our infinite regard for the weal of the tawny tribe, we recommend to the adoption of all other justices and knights of the shire. Bidding his grandsire have regard to his seat, Luke leapt a high bank, and, followed by Turpin, began to descend the hill. Peter, however, took care to provide for himself. The descent was so perilous, and the footing so insecure, that he chose rather to trust to such conveyance as nature had furnished him with, than to hazard his neck by any false step of the horse. He contrived, therefore, to slide off from behind, shaping his own course in a more secure direction. He who has wandered amidst the Alps must have often had occasion to witness the wonderful sure-footedness of the mountain pilot, the mule. He must have remarked how, with tenacious hoof, he will claw the rock, and drag himself from one impending fragment to another, with perfect security to his rider. How he will breast the roaring currents of air, and stand unshrinking at the verge of almost unfathomable ravines. But it is not so with the horse. Fleet on the plain, careful over rugged ground, he is timid and uncertain on the hillside, and the risk incurred by Luke and Turpin in their descent of the almost perpendicular sides of the cliff was tremendous. Peter watched them in their descent with some admiration, and with much contempt. "'He will break his neck of a surety,' said he. "'But what matters it? As well now as hereafter.' So saying, he approached the verge of the precipice, where he could see them more distinctly. The passage along which Luke rode had never before been traversed by horse's hoof. Cut in the rock, it presented a steep zigzag path amongst the hills, without any defence for the foot-traveller, except such as was afforded by a casual clinging shrub, 
and no protection whatever existed for a horseman. The possibility of any one attempting the passage not having, in all probability, entered into the calculation of those who framed it. Added to this, the steps were of such unequal heights, and withal so narrow, that the danger was proportionately increased. Ten thousand devils!' cried Turpin, staring downwards. "'Is this the best road you've got?' "'You will find one more easy,' replied Luke. "'If you ride for a quarter of a mile down the wood, and then return by the brookside, you will meet me at the priory.' "'No,' answered the highwayman boldly. "'If you go, I go too. It shall never be said that Dick Turpin was afraid to follow where another would lead. Proceed.' Luke gave his horse the bridle, and the animal slowly and steadily commenced the descent, fixing his forelegs upon the steps, and drawing his hinder limbs carefully after him. Here it was that the lightness and steadiness of Turpin's mare was completely shown. No alpine mule could have borne its rider with more apparent ease and safety. Turpin encouraged her by hand and word, but she needed it not. The sexton saw them, and, tracking their giddy descent, he became more interested than he anticipated. His attention was suddenly drawn towards Luke. "'He's gone!' cried Peter. "'He falls! He sinks! My plans are all defeated! The last link is snapped!' "'No,' added he, recovering his wonted composure. "'His end is not so fated!' Rook had missed his footing. He rolled stumbling down the precipice a few yards. Luke's fate seemed inevitable. His feet were entangled in the stirrup. He could not free himself. A birch-tree, growing in a chink of the precipice, arrested his further fall. But for this timely aid all had been over. Here Luke was enabled to extricate himself from the stirrup and to regain his feet. Seizing the bridle, he dragged his faulty steed back again to the road. "'You've had a narrow escape, by Jove,' said Turpin, who had been thunderstruck with the whole proceeding. "'Those big cattle are always clumsy. Devilish lucky it's no worse.' It was now comparatively smooth travelling, but they had not as yet reached the valley, and it seemed to be Luke's object to take a circuitous path. This was so evident that Turpin could not help commenting upon it. Luke evaded the question. "'The crag is steep there,' said he. "'Besides,' "'To tell you the truth, I want to surprise them.' laughed Dick. "'Surprise them, eh? What a pity the birch-tree was in the way. You would have done it properly, then. Egad, there's another surprise!' Dick's last exclamation was caused by his having suddenly come upon a wide gully in the rock, through which dashed a headlong torrent crossed by a single plank. "'You must be mad to have taken this road,' cried Turpin gazing down into the roaring depths in which the waterfall raged, and measuring the distance of the pass with his eye. "'So-so, Bess. Aye. Look at it, wench. Curse me, Luke, if you think your horse will do it, and therefore turn him loose.' But Dick might as well have bidden the cataract to flow backwards. Luke struck his heels into his horse's sides. The steed galloped to the brink, snorted, and refused the leap. "'I told you so. He can't do it.' said Turpin. Well, if you're obstinate, a willful man must have his way. Stand aside while I try it for you. Patting Bess, he put her to the gallop. She cleared the gulf bravely, landing her rider safely upon the opposite rock. Now then, cried Turpin, from the other side of the chasm. Luke again urged his steed. Encouraged by what he had seen, 
This time the horse sprang across without hesitation. The next instant they were in the valley. For some time they rode along the banks of the stream in silence. A sound at length caught the quick ears of the highwayman. Hist! cried he. Someone sings! Do you hear it? I do, replied Luke, the blood rushing to his cheeks. And could give a guess at the singer, no doubt, said Turpin, with a knowing look. Was it to hear yon woodlark that you nearly broke your own neck, and put mine in jeopardy? Prithee be silent, whispered Luke. I am dumb, replied Turpin. I like a sweet voice as well as another. Clear as the note of a bird, yet melancholy as the distant dole of a vesper bell, arose the sound of that sweet voice from the wood. A fragment of a Spanish gypsy song it warbled. Luke knew it well. Thus ran the romance. La Gitania By the Guadalquivir, ere the sun be flown, By that glorious river sits a maid alone, Like the sunset splendour of that current bright, Shone her dark eyes tender as its witching light, Like the ripple flowing, tinged with purple sheen, Darkly, richly glowing, is her warm cheek seen. Tis the Gitania, by the stream doth linger, In the hope that eve will her lover bring her. See, the sun is sinking, all grows dim and dies, See, the waves are drinking, glories of the skies, Day's last lustre playeth on that current dark, Yet no speck betrayeth his long-look-for bark. Tis the hour of meeting, nay, the hour is past, Swift the time is fleeting, fleeteth hope as fast. Still the Gitania by the stream doth linger, In the hope that night will her lover bring her. The tender trembling of a guitar was heard in accompaniment of the ravishing melodist. The song ceased. "'Where is the bird?' asked Turpin. "'Move on in silence, and you shall see,' said Luke, and keeping upon the turf, so that his horse's tread became inaudible, he presently arrived at a spot where, through the boughs, the object of his investigation could plainly be distinguished, though he himself was concealed from view. Upon a platform of rock, rising to the height of the trees, nearly perpendicular from the river's bed, appeared the figure of the gypsy maid. Her footstep rested on the extreme edge of the abrupt cliff, at whose base the water boiled in a deep whirlpool, and the bounding chamois could not have been more lightly poised. One hand rested upon her guitar, the other pressed her brow. Braided hair of the jettiest dye and sleekest texture was twined around her brow in endless twisted folds. Rolled as it was in many a curious fret, much like a rich and curious coronet, upon whose arches twenty cupids lay, and were as tied or loth to fly away. And so exuberant was this rarest of feminine ornament, that, after encompassing her brow, it was passed behind, and hung down in long thick plaits almost to her feet, sparkling as the sunbeams that played upon her dark yet radiant features, were the large, black, oriental eyes of the maiden, and shaded with lashes long and silken. Hers was a Moorish countenance, in which the magnificence of the eyes eclipses the face, be it ever so beautiful, an effect to be observed in the angelic pictures of Murillo. And the lovely contour is scarcely noticed in the gaze which those long, languid, luminous orbs attract. Sybil's features were exquisite, 
yet you looked only at her eyes. They were the lodestars of her countenance. Her costume was singular, and partook, like herself, of other climes. Like the Andalusian dame, her choice of colour inclined towards black, as the material of most of her dress was of that sombre hue. A bodice of embroidered velvet restrained her delicate bosom's swell. A rich girdle, from which depended a silver chain, sustaining a short poniard, bound her waist. Around her slender throat was twined a costly kerchief, and the rest of her dress was calculated to display her slight, yet faultless figure to the fullest advantage. Unconscious that she was the object of regard, she raised her guitar, and essayed to touch the chords. She struck a few notes, and resumed her romance. Swift that stream flows on, swift the night is wearing, yet she is not gone, though with heart despairing. Her song died away. Her hand was needed to brush off the tears that were gathering in her large dark eyes. At once her attitude was changed. The hair could not have started more suddenly from her form. She heard accents well known concluding the melody. Dips an oar splash, hark, gently on the river, tis her lover's bark. On the Guadalquivir, hark, a song she hears. Every note she snatches as the singer nears, her own name she catches, now the Giantia stays not by the water, for the midnight hour hath her lover brought her. It was her lover's voice. She caught the sound at once, and starting as the row would arouse herself at the hunter's approach, bounded down the crag, and ere he had finished the refrain, was by his side. Flinging the bridle to Turpin, Luke sprang to her and caught her in his arms. Disengaging herself from his ardent embrace, Sybil drew back, abashed at the sight of the highwayman. "'Heed him not,' said Luke. "'It is a friend.' "'He is welcome here, then,' replied Sybil. "'But where have you tarried so long, dear Luke?' continued she, as they walked to a little distance from the highwayman. "'What hath detained you? The hours have passed wearily since you departed. You bring good news?' "'Good news, my girl. So good.' that I falter even in the telling of it, you shall know all anon, and see our friend yonder grows impatient. Are there any stirring? We must bestow a meal upon him, and that forthwith. He's one of those who would brook not much delay. I came not to spoil a love-meeting, said Turpin, who had good-humouredly witnessed the scene, but in sober seriousness, if there is a stray capon to be met within the land of Egypt, I shall be glad to make his acquaintance. Methinks I sent a stew afar off. "'Follow me,' said Sybil. "'Your wants shall be supplied.' "'Stay,' said Luke. "'There is one other of our party whose coming we must abide.' "'He is here,' said Sybil, observing the sexton at a distance. "'Who is that old man?' "'My grandsire, Peter Bradley.' "'Is that Peter Bradley?' asked Sybil. "'Aye, you may well ask whether that old dried-up otomy who ought to grin in the glass case for folks to stare at, be kith and kin of such a bang-up cove as your fancy-man Luke, said Turpin, laughing. But, if faith he is. Though he is your grandsire, Luke, said Sybil, I like him not. His glance resembles that of the evil eye. And, in fact, the look which Peter fixed upon her was such as the rattlesnake casts upon its victim, 
and Sybil felt like a poor fluttering bird under the fascination of that venomous reptile. She could not remove her eyes from his, though she trembled as she gazed. We have said that Peter's orbs were like those of the toad. Age had not dimmed their brilliancy. In his harsh features you could only read bitter scorn or withering hate, but in his eyes resided a magnetic influence of attraction or repulsion. Sybil underwent the former feeling in a disagreeable degree. She was drawn to him as by the motion of a whirlpool, and involuntarily clung to her lover. "'It is the evil eye, dear Luke!' "'Tut, tut, dear Sybil! I tell you, it is my grandsire!' "'The girl says it rightly, however,' rejoined Turpin. "'Peter has a confounded ugly look about the ogles, and stares enough to put a modest wench out of countenance.' "'Come, come, my old earthworm, crawl along, we've waited for you long enough. "'Is this the first time you've seen a pretty lass, eh?' "'It's the first time I've seen one so beautiful,' said Peter, "'and I crave her pardon if my freedom has offended her. "'I wonder not your enchantment, grandson Luke, now I behold the object of it, "'but there is one piece of counsel I would give to this fair maid. "'The next time she trusts you from her sight, "'I would advise her to await you at the hilltop. "'Otherwise... The chances are shrewdly against your reaching the ground with neck unbroken. There was something, notwithstanding the satirical manner in which Peter delivered this speech, calculated to make a more favourable impression upon Sybil than his previous conduct had inspired her with, and having ascertained from Luke to what his speech referred, she extended her hand to him, yet not without a shudder as it was enclosed in his skinny grasp. It was like the fingers of Venus in the grasp of a skeleton. "'This is a little hand,' said Peter, "'and I have some skill myself in palmistry. Shall I peruse its lines?' "'Not now, in the devil's name,' said Turpin, stamping impatiently. "'We shall have old ruffian himself amongst us presently if Peter Bradley grows gallant.' Leading their horses, the party took their way through the trees. A few minutes' walking brought them in sight of the gypsy encampment, the spot selected for which might be termed the Eden of the valley. It was a small green plain, smooth as a well-shorn lawn, kept ever verdant, save in the spots where the frequent fires had scorched its surface by the flowing stream that rushed past it, and surrounded by an amphitheatre of wooded hills. Here might be seen the canvas tent with its patches of varied colouring, the rude-fashioned hut of primitive construction, the kettle slung between two poles upon a stick transverse, the tethered beasts of burden, the horses, asses, dogs, carts, caravans, wains, blocks, and other movables and immovables belonging to the wandering tribe. Glimmering through the trees at the extremity of the plain appeared the ivy-mantled walls of Davenham Priory. Though much had gone to decay, Enough remained to recall the pristine state of this once majestic pile, and the long broken line of Saxon arches that still marked the cloister wall. The piers that yet supported the dormitory, the enormous horseshoe arch that spanned the court, and above all, the great marigold or circular window which terminated the chapel, and which, though now despoiled of its painted honours, retained like the skeleton leaf its fibrous intricacies entire. All eloquently spoke of the glories of the past, while they awakened reverence and admiration for the still enduring beauty of the present. Towards these ruins Sybil conducted the party. "'Do you dwell therein?' asked Peter, pointing towards the priory. 
that is my dwelling, said Sybil. It is one I should covet more than a modern mansion, returned the sexton. I love those old walls better than any house that was ever fashioned, replied Sybil. As they entered the prior's close, as it was called, several swarthy figures made their appearance from the tents. Many a greeting was bestowed upon Luke, in the wild jargon of the tribe. At length, an uncouth, dwarfish figure, with a shock head of black hair, hopped towards them. He seemed to acknowledge Luke as his master. "'What, oh, grasshopper?' said Luke. "'Take these horses, and see that they lack neither dressing nor provender.' "'And hark ye, grasshopper,' added Turpin, "'I give you a special charge about this mare. "'Neither dress nor feed her till I see both them myself. "'Just walk her for ten minutes, "'and if you have a glass of ale in the place, let her sip it.' "'Your bidding shall be done,' chirped the human insect, "'as he fluttered away with his charges. "'A motley assemblage of tawny-skinned varlets, "'dark-eyed women and children, "'whose dusky limbs betrayed their lineage "'in strange costume and of wild deportment, "'checked the path muttering welcome upon welcome into the ear of Luke as he passed. As it was evident that he was in no mood for converse, Sybil, who seemed to exercise considerable authority over the crew, with a word dispersed them, and they herded back to their respective habitations. A low door admitted Luke and his companions into what had once been the garden, in which some old moss-encrusted apple and walnut trees were still standing, bearing a look of antiquity almost as venerable as that of the adjoining fabric. Another door gave them entrance to a spacious chamber, formerly the eating-room or refectory of the Holy Brotherhood, and a goodly room it had been, though now its slender, lanceolated windows were stuffed with hay to keep out the air. Large holes told where huge oaken rafters had once crossed the roof, and a yawning aperture marked the place where a cheering fire had formerly blazed. As regarded this latter spot, the good old custom was not, even now, totally abrogated. An iron plate, covered with crackling wood, sustained a ponderous black cauldron, the rich steam from which gratefully affected the olfactory organs of the highwayman. "'That org as well,' said he, rubbing his hands. "'Still hungering after the flesh-pots of Egypt,' said the sexton, with a ghastly smile. "'We will see what that kettle contains,' said Luke. "'Hadassa, Grace!' exclaimed Sybil, calling. Her summons was answered by two maidens, habited not unbecomingly in gypsy gear. "'Bring the best our larder can furnish,' said Sybil, "'and use dispatch. You have appetites to provide for, sharpened by a long ride in the open air.' "'And by a night's fasting,' said Luke, "'and solitary confinement to boot.' "'And a night of business,' added Turpin, "'and plaguy perplexing business into the bargain.' "'And the night of a funeral, too,' doled Peter. "'And that funeral of father's. "'Let us have breakfast speedily, by all means. "'We have rare appetites.' "'An old oaken table, "'it might have been the self-same "'upon which the holy friars had broken their morning fast, "'stood in the middle of the room. "'The ample board soon groaned beneath the weight of the savoury cauldron, "'the unctuous contents of which proved to be a couple of dismembered pheasants.' an equal proportion of poultry, great gouts of ham, mushrooms, onions, and other piquant condiments, so satisfactory to Dick Turpin that, upon tasting a mouthful, he absolutely shed tears of delight. The dish was indeed the triumph of gypsy cookery, 
and so sedulously did Dick apply himself to his mess, and so complete was his abstraction, that he perceived not he was left alone. It was only when about to wash down the last drumstick of the last fowl with a can of excellent ale that he made his discovery. "'What? Oh, gone! And Peter Bradley, too? What the devil does this mean?' mused he. "'I must not muddle my brain with any more pharaoh, though I have feasted like a king of Egypt. That will never do. Caution, Dick, caution. Suppose I shift yon brick from the wall and place this precious document beneath it. Ah, Luke will never play me false.' And now for Bess, bless her black skin. She'll wonder where I've been so long. It's not my way to leave her to shift for herself, though she can do that on a pinch. Soliloquising thus, he arose and walked towards the door. End of chapter 2, book 3